Good morning, Glenkirk family. How are you this morning? Good. It's good to be here with you today, and I want to thank Pastor Tim for that kind introduction, and I want to thank the worship band for leading us in worship this morning. Now, many of you may not recognize me without a baby attached to me this morning, and I got to say, I'm feeling a little underdressed this morning up here. And as Pastor Tim said earlier, my name is Leif, and I am definitely best known as Kate's husband. So if you forget my name and call me Mr. Kate, I will respond. I have to say that being a part of the Glenkirk family this past 16 months or so has been such a joy and a blessing for our family. And I want you to know that your love and support of us has made such an impact on who we are, um, both as individuals and as a married couple and as parents. So thank you for that. I'm honored to be asked to share with you all this morning. Now, something you should know about me is I did not start having an interest in cooking until after I met Kate, aside from the occasional apple pancake breakfast. Now, I was mostly content to just enjoy the food that other people made for me. Can you relate to that, anyone? Yeah? Um, And I would also have to suffer through my own cooking when necessary, of course. So I never really thought much about cooking. My family, we had our tried and true recipes that we enjoyed. We didn't venture out too far. We didn't watch cooking shows or read cooking magazines. And so it was a little surprising for me when I realized how much joy could be found in watching cooking shows, which is something I was introduced to when I was dating Kate after she finally allowed me to meet her family. You see, my father-in-law, John, who many of you knew, loved cooking, and he loved cooking cooking shows. And so sometimes he would watch these shows to improve his own cooking, or sometimes he would watch them just for entertainment. Sometimes he would watch these shows to get ideas for a new dish or a new take on a dish that he already made. Sometimes he would watch them for the sheer joy of seeing how others made mouth-watering, incredible meals. I watched them for the joy of spending time with John. When my father-in-law watched a show about cooking, he really got into it. Now, he was in the practice of cooking regularly. He loved cooking, and he loved learning about new things. And, And because of his experience in the kitchen, he actually knew how to apply that new knowledge that he gained from cooking shows or from reading about cooking. And here's the crazy part. He actually would put that new knowledge into practice. See, I, on the other hand, can watch a cooking show and become incredibly motivated to get in the kitchen. And yet I still struggle to know when to start boiling the water if the recipe doesn't specifically tell me to do it. You see, it turns out that watching cooking shows doesn't actually make you a cook. Over the past year and a half since I became the primary cook for our household, this truth has been reinforced time and time again. No, you see, if you wanna be a cook, You have to get in the kitchen and cook. Today is the last in our series that we've called Reformed, and that has taken us through Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. We've spent the last 11 weeks going through this sermon found in Matthew chapters five through seven. And if you're like me, this sermon has impacted the way you think about God, and the way you think about your relationships, and the way you think about yourself. And it's shown us various areas that we need reformation if we want to live the lives of discipleship that Jesus has called us to. Today we will be looking at Jesus' conclusion to this sermon. And this conclusion challenges us to reform our practices. So if you are able, 
Would you stand for the reading of God's words out of Matthew chapter seven, verses 24 through 29. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now you may have noticed the very first word in this passage, therefore, connects these words of Jesus, this parable, to the passage that Pastor Tim preached on from last week. That therefore means that what we read today is deeply connected and builds on what Jesus has already said. So it seems like a quick reminder of last week's message might serve us well. Last week, Pastor Tim reminded us that the audience, the people that Jesus was speaking to when he gave this sermon, was comprised of two groups. You may remember this. The crowd, those who'd come to see and hear Jesus, to have their illnesses healed and to... Um, and their questions answered. And the second group, the disciples, who had stepped out of the crowd to trust and follow Jesus. Pastor Tim also explained how the verses just before this, verses 21 through 23, focus on discerning between true and false discipleship. False disciples will appear to be Christians. They call Jesus their Lord. They boldly proclaim God's truth. They may even perform miracles in Jesus' name. But Jesus says that these false disciples did not do the will of the Father, and as a result, he never knew them. On the other hand, true disciples have a relationship with Jesus. They are those who trust and obey Jesus and who actually do the will of God, the Father. True discipleship, as Pastor Tim said last week, isn't perfect, but it seeks to do what Jesus says to do, even the hard stuff. And as a reminder, this truth is something to help us determine whether we ourselves are true disciples, not to judge whether somebody else is or not. So you can see how the parable that Jesus tells today that gives us in our passage today builds off what he said about true discipleship and the verses just before. Jesus' parable, though, here also builds on the Old Testament. It's likely that the Jewish listeners would have made a connection between Jesus' parable and the book of Proverbs, which speaks a lot about wisdom. And if you're familiar with it at all, you'll know what I mean. For example, something that directly ties is from Proverbs chapter 24, verse 3, which says this, by wisdom a house is built, and through understanding it is established. See, this reminds us of something that Pastor Kate taught us earlier in this series, that Jesus came to fill up or to color in, to fulfill the law and the Old Testament, not to do away with it. So let's get back to our parable today. Unlike some of Jesus' parables, this one is pretty straightforward and easy to understand. In fact, it's the reason why we teach it to kids in Sunday school in Awanas. We could sum it up by saying something like this. 
God's will is to do what Jesus asks us to do, not to do the flashy things. Where Jesus says, you've heard my words, now be wise and put them into practice and build on the rock. Do what I've asked you to do. It reminds me of the times that I've gone to physical therapy. The physical therapist always tells me only so much is going to change if I don't actually practice the exercises at home like I've been shown. Or like cooking shows. They're great, but if you want to be a cook, you've got to get in the kitchen and cook. And this is the heart of Jesus' ending words to this sermon, what he's emphasizing to his audience. Putting Jesus' words into practice, not just hearing them, is what's important and is what's wise. For as simple as this message is, there has been a surprising amount of debate around this very topic for centuries. The debate is what is more important, what we believe or what we do. As far back as Jesus' time, Jewish rabbis debated whether hearing or doing the law was more important. And as biblical scholar Craig Keener explains, most rabbis concluded that hearing the law was more important because you couldn't do it without hearing it. However, they did insist that both hearing and doing were necessary. This wasn't just kept with the rabbi or the Jewish debates. Luther and Calvin both engaged in similar debates in their times about faith versus actions. And today, different churches and church leaders, well, they're separated by their ideas about our ability to live holy lives, to live according to the way that God calls us to or to actually do God's will. And as a result of these debates over the centuries, a false dichotomy or a false choice has been set up. Faith versus works. Belief versus actions. Some say how we live or what we do is what's most important, while others say what we believe is what's most important. And as happens with most debates, even today, debates push people to the extremes. And so some people have started saying, it doesn't matter what you believe at all. It doesn't matter what religion or lack thereof you practice. The only thing that matters is if you live a good life. And on the other side, the opposite view is taken where it says, no, what you do doesn't matter at all. The only thing that matters is what you believe and that you say Jesus is Lord. If you look at popular Christian books and sermons and devotions, it seems clear that the dominant view among evangelicals has minimized the role of our actions in favor of emphasizing the importance of our beliefs and interior motives. I believe that when we continue this false conflict between faith and actions, we do so to our detriment. Author Rachel Held Evans sums this up well when she writes, among evangelicals, faith has been redefined as an intellectual assent to a set of propositional truths. We are told that Jesus came to die as if the Sermon on the Mount is just a suggestion or an afterthought. We are told that salvation can be achieved by simply professing Jesus as the Son of God when even the demons do the same. And as we see in our passage this week as well as last week's, Jesus makes it clear that true discipleship takes more than believing the right things or publicly acknowledging Jesus as Lord. See, true discipleship requires a reforming of our practices, of how we live. 
In this parable, Jesus speaks into the debate about whether hearing God's word, believing the right things, or doing God's word, our actions, is more important. Jesus says, those who hear and yet treat his words as suggestions are like the foolish person. They choose to build on something that's not solid, on their own wisdom. And yet, true disciples, those who hear and, have actually, and actually live by Jesus' words, are like the wise person. The house they build is built to last and it's not easily shaken. They hear, they have faith, and then that faith actually reforms their practices. It actually reforms how we live. Now hear me out. Faith is obviously important. Hearing Jesus' words is important. Believing the right things is important. But faith that does not actually lead to a reforming of our practices is not a lasting faith. It's like building on sand. See, what Jesus' parable teaches is stated even more explicitly in the book of James, chapter two, verses 14 through 17, which says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. What we need, in other words, is both faith and actions. No matter how often we hear other people talk about it, we shouldn't buy into the false dichotomy of faith versus actions. Faith and works are not opposed to each other. They go hand in hand. They inform each other and they work together. It's like the difference between watching a cooking show or reading a recipe and actually using that knowledge when you cook. You need to know what you're doing, but you also have to do it. Would any of us call someone who sits watching cooking shows all day a cook? I wish we could. Or what good is a recipe that we never actually attempt to make? Just remember, if you wanna be a cook, you gotta get in the kitchen and cook. And in the same way, listening to Jesus' words doesn't make us disciples. If you wanna be a disciple, you've gotta step out of the crowd and put Jesus' words into action. Now, growing up in the church, it seemed to me that most of this debate about faith versus actions or beliefs versus what we do really centered around one question, the question of how do we get to heaven? But being a disciple is so much more than simply purchasing eternal life insurance. It's about actually knowing Jesus here and now. It's about being part of God's kingdom here on earth as Jesus affirms in the Lord's prayer that he taught us. There is no substitute for this. If you want to develop a relationship with Jesus, we can't simply hear his words and then do things our own way. Jesus came to the crowds. He went where they were and he met them in their time of need. And then he called them to follow him, to join him. Some stepped out of the crowd and became disciples. But most, most heard Jesus' words and chose to stay in the crowd. Most were content with experiencing Jesus' healing touch, with hearing his words and witnessing his miracles. And the same, it's the same today. Jesus has met me many times in my times of need. He's come to me where I am. Can you relate to that? 
And now Jesus has called me to join him and to meet him where he is. Am I going to step out of the crowd? Am I going to be a disciple? Are you? Because if you wanna be a cook, you gotta get in the kitchen and cook. And if you wanna be a disciple, you gotta step out of the crowd and put Jesus' words into practice. So this brings us to an important connection with last week's messages, or last week's message. Reforming our practices will change our relationship with Jesus. Jesus is alive and active in our world. And when we actually put his words into practice, it's like we step away from merely watching the cooking show and instead join him in the kitchen. When I started cooking with my father-in-law, I had an important lesson reinforced. There's no better way for getting to know somebody than by joining them and doing the thing that they love and in serving others. In fact, one of the main reasons I started cooking in the first place and got into the kitchen is because I wanted to know my father-in-law more. And I saw how much he and Kate connected over cooking. And my father-in-law got to know me in much deeper ways because I was in the kitchen with him. And let's be honest, I love eating great meals. Love eating great meals. But I found much more joy in being a part of the process of making those meals with him for others. See, being a part of the experience is always better than merely being a consumer of it. Being a consumer, we can only sit at the table and critique or praise the meal. Our experience of the meal is entirely dependent on what has been given us and by what we expected when we ordered. But being in the kitchen, we get to be a part of that whole experience. Our experience is much deeper than just the food that we're eating, the things that we're experiencing. See, our experience of the meal includes deepening relationships and learning and growing and laughter. Even when the meal doesn't turn out as we hoped, like the apple cider I tried to make this week, it's okay. See, those in the crowd loved Jesus's miracles. They loved his words. And they even loved the literal food and wine that he miraculously provided them. But that didn't mean that they knew him. When we step out of the crowd, to become disciples, our experience of Jesus goes much deeper than the miracles and the blessings that we receive. See, I find it interesting to compare how the church and the early church was known versus how the church is known today. The early church was actually called the people of the way. That's not what they called themselves. That's what they were called by others because of the way that they lived their lives. Their lives actually conformed to the way of Jesus. On the other hand, it seems to me that today we, the church, are known more by what we think and what we say than by how we live. And this reminds me of a quote from Brendan Manning, who says, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians, who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And I've thought about this quote many times over the 20 plus years since I heard it. And I've often wondered if I'm part of the problem or not. At times, I know I've been one of those whose praise of Jesus does not line up with my life choices. And even though I've never been one to preach at my work or to, or to my neighbors, the people around me have always known that I'm a Christian. See, it feels awkward to me to try to talk to a coworker about faith, especially at work, or a neighbor who I don't really know all that well. 
It's something that I wanna work on, starting faith conversations with those in my circles. But in the midst of this journey, I've come to believe a very profound truth, that our witness is far more than just our words. And reforming our practices will transform our witness. So even more than getting better with my words, I want my daily actions to show how my life has been reformed by Jesus. Now we live in a world that's inundated with ads and sales pitches. In fact, you've probably had a couple door-to-door salesmen come to your house already this week. But I have noticed that the most effective way for me to get interested in something is when someone I know has personally had their life impacted by it. Can you relate to this? Like for instance, I hate running. I hate running. But about a year ago, I actually bought running shoes because some of my friends started running. And I saw the impact that it had on their lives, on their health, on their moods, on their energy levels. Now I gotta be honest, I still have never worn those shoes. But that's a powerful story that they'd actually got me to buy some running shoes to think about it, right? Perhaps you can think of a few things yourself that are like that. Now, how much more would our lives be transformed if we reformed our practices around Jesus's words compared to just running? And how much more would that transformation speak than simply telling others what we think? It's clear that the words of Jesus are intended to be put into practice both from his own words and from the imagery used in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, I love this part. You see, the image of Jesus giving his teaching, his words, on a mountain. So, you know, we call this a Sermon on the Mount because Jesus went up on the mountain and gave us these words, the words of God. And that evokes the image of God on Mount Sinai, where God gives Moses the law. And like Moses, who led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and into freedom, Jesus is leading us to a place of freedom, too. With all due respect to Luther and those who believe that Jesus' words here are too hard for us or impossible to live out, I think they have missed this important point, that putting Jesus' words into practice will bring us to a place of freedom and renewal. We will be reformed into the likeness of Christ when we put his words into practice. And think about how that would impact our witness to those around us. Our lives, the house we build on the rock, will speak where words fall short. Because if you wanna be a disciple and lead others to Christ, you've got to step out of the crowd and put Jesus' words into practice. This brings us to the final image in Jesus' parable, the storms. Notice that Jesus does not promise to save us from life's storms. What Jesus says is that our house will stand when we face the storms that life brings us, if we have put his words into practice. See, everyone who lives long enough faces storms of some kind, whether it be a relationship, financial, employment, loss of physical ability, or fill in the blank. We all face storms. Christians and non-Christians, young and old, disciples and the crowd, rich and poor. We cannot live, well, and I wanna say, for, for many of us, this holiday season has been a reminder of some of the storms we are facing or have faced in the past. 
But we cannot live so well. We cannot live so perfectly as to avoid the storms of life. That is not a promise that God has given us. Storms are simply a part of life, not a punishment from heaven. What Jesus does give us is a foundation to build on that will allow us to weather the storms. Jesus' words here, the Sermon on the Mount, are wisdom. They're meant to be put into practice so that we have a foundation when the storms hit. Because reforming our practices will help us weather life's storms. So Jesus lived on this earth in a country occupied by a foreign power that ultimately put him to death. Jesus is not ignorant of the storms of life and the difficult things in life that we face. Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount are not just for those who are living well, they're for all of us. I know you believe Jesus is good and that Jesus is holy. You likely wouldn't be here this morning if you didn't. But Jesus is also wise. And if we trust that and put Jesus' words into action, if we actually reform our practices around them, we don't have to be crushed by the storms of life. And we don't have to hide our storms from others. I think many times as Christians, we think that we have to appear to have it all together if we're gonna have a good witness. You may find your witness to Christ's transformative power is most profound in the midst of life's storms as others see how you weather them. Now, for too much of my life, my goal was to know more, to know more about God, to know more about the Bible, to know more about faith. But I'm learning that knowing more isn't the only or even the primary goal that Jesus calls me to. Of course, we want to learn more, but being a disciple isn't determined by our level of intelligence or knowledge. It's based on stepping out of the crowd and putting Jesus' words into practice. So I hope someday I can say something similar to the Apostle Paul who says, follow me as I follow Christ. I hope we all can. I hope someday I can be confident that though I may not have all the answers or have it all together, that I have built a life, a faith on a rock and can weather the storms that I stepped out of the crowd and put Jesus' words into action, that I know Jesus and that Jesus knows me. And no matter what other answers I still lack, that I can share. Because in the end, if you wanna be a cook, you gotta get in the kitchen and cook. And if you wanna be a disciple, if you wanna have a relationship with Jesus, you've gotta step out of the crowd and put Jesus' words into action. So Jesus says a lot in the Sermon on the Mount, and I can admit that sometimes, It may seem overwhelming, but here's the thing with cooking and with discipleship. You gotta start somewhere. You've got to start somewhere. You can only cook one meal at a time, or at least I can only cook one meal at a time. And I think it's often the same with putting Jesus' words into action. With cooking, you have to decide which meal to start with, and you have to do the same with Jesus' teaching. Which part of Jesus' teaching are you going to start with? So as we start to wrap this up this morning, I invite you to think about what you've learned and what you've heard throughout this sermon series. The topics are up on the screen. Now I know many of you are already living these out and I have seen that and I have been learning from you over this past 16 months. And many of you like me, you'll look at that list and you'll also recognize at least one area of Jesus' teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount that you could work on putting into practice. We all have to start somewhere. 
If you're going to be a disciple, you have to step out of the crowd and start putting Jesus' words into practice. And if you're going to be a cook, say it with me, you've gotta get in the kitchen and cook. I gotta be honest, I thought that might be louder. (laughs) We're gonna close with a prayer. And as we pray and as the band comes up, take a moment. Use this time to make a commitment or a recommitment to start somewhere by putting one of these teachings of Jesus into practice. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you. As we come out of this season of Thanksgiving, we're reminded just how much you have given us. We wanna thank you for the words of Jesus and that these are actually meant and intended to be put into practice and be a guide for how we live. And Lord, we wanna thank you that though we will weather the storms of life just like everyone else here on earth, that you have given us a way to build on a rock so that our lives will not be crushed when the storms of life hit. Lord, I pray that your voice would continue to speak to us this week and remind us of putting your words into practice and that we can do it. May you be our great encourager, our great guide, and our great hope. In Christ's name we pray, amen.